It is always a pleasure and a privilege to come and be able to preach to my congregation uh, as a member, uh, having served here for a number of years before I retired. And I thought that when I retired, uh, that would end uh, a particular item that was even around at biblical times, which is a paycheck. Uh, but I still have been doing some part-time work. But I entered the workforce of the United States of America with a Social Security card and newly uh, printed for me in 1968 at the ripe old age of 14 years old. Uh, while being 14 in the state of New York, you're allowed to work. You were allowed to work a very limited number of hours. You had to finish your work before, I think, 6 o'clock in the evening. And I recalled, to the best that I could uh, this week as I was thinking, that uh, I started at a whopping $1.20 an hour. Uh, I, I went to the Internet uh, last night just to check what the minimum wage in the United States was then because I don't remember things all that well anymore, it seems. Uh, and in 1967, it was $1.15. And sometime in 1968, it went up to $1.60. And so the 120 sounds pretty right. And I expect that one of the other things was that because I wasn't 16 years old, that they could pay me a little bit less than that $1.60 and get away with it. I, uh, learned very quickly at the age of 14 to make a, an ice cream cone with soft serve that would swirl up and come to a very nice point, and I take great pride in that ability even until today. I bring that up because it was uh, a wonderful thing uh, after being brought up in an Irish Catholic family with seven children uh, did not did not know the meaning of the words or, or uh, the, the word allowance uh, to actually have money that I had earned and, and, and belonged to me. Uh, my parents did not charge me any rent then. I thank them for that. Uh, I spent most of it, I saved some of it in the hopes of someday going to college, but had none of it by the time I got to college. I learned to play golf and, and I paid my own way so that my parents didn't have to do that. I ate a lot of ice cream um, and I had discovered not long before that the wonders of uh, this place with yellow arches called McDonald's. Uh, but from that point until today, uh, I understand firsthand what I'm about to say and is that people who work like and expect paychecks. And if they don't have them, um, there may be uh, some uh, real concerns about that. I, I worked for a number of years in a company called RFI. Uh, we have a plant down in Broomfield. And uh, there was a time when we issued two paychecks a month rather than every two weeks. And what would happen, you were paid on the 15th and the last day of the month, uh, what would happen is that if you, the 15th was on a weekend, uh, 
you would get paid on the Friday before, whether it be the 13th, possibly the 13th, or uh, the 14th, but uh, we had a new controller that uh, actually two times, and by the second time, the person eventually, very soon after that, I don't think was our controller anymore, but uh, scheduled things with the bank to wait until the following Monday to direct deposit the pay, so that Monday could potentially have been the uh, up to even the 16th, uh, and it caused one of the greatest uproars that I had ever seen in the company uh, from its inception. And uh, we weren't immune from that. I, I spent all day at work with my wife texting me, your pay on Friday, your paycheck has not been deposited and I have bills to pay. So I, I just put that all uh, as a, uh, a start to the message this morning. We're going to get back to that a little bit later in our sermon, but it does relate to the text today, which is found in Romans chapter 6, and I'd ask you to turn there. And I'm not going to specifically mention, but I am going to ask children and, and others to look for uh, uh, any references that might have to do with uh, paychecks uh, in this particular passage. Um, in Psalm 106, we're going to talk quite a bit about that in just a few minutes, but uh, we have a psalm that talks about the nation of Israel and all of its uh, sin, uh, the people of God, uh, chosen by God, uh, to be his people on earth in Old Testament times, uh, constantly turning their backs on God, sinning against God, uh, playing the harlot with the nations uh, was in that uh, psalm as well. And in Romans 6, we have some of the answers that Psalm 106 gives to us um, in, in terms of when we sin, how should we think about that? And uh, Paul anticipates some of those things. So in, in the end of chapter 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Do you understand the question Paul's been talking about? The fact that the Old Testament law defined what sin was, and so the more that people became aware of the law of God, particularly in Israel, but as they shared it with the nations around them, um, the more obvious it became that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are in need of uh, salvation, and that sin needs to be dealt with. And uh, if Jesus indeed is the one who saves us from our sin, is the idea that Paul is making here at the end, that what I read at the end of chapter 5, uh, that since the more sin there is, the more grace there is, maybe we should just continue to sin and, and uh, then there will be more grace and God will glorify himself even more. And Paul's answer to that, are we to continue in sin in verse 1, 
uh, is may it never be. And he goes on to give us an explanation. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him, that is Jesus, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And so if Christ has indeed saved you and he has uh, put uh, your sins away from him as far as the east from the west is distant, then we must walk in uh, that newness that belongs to us as Christians. Now, verse 8, we have died with Christ. We believe that he, we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. In, in other words, if Christ has saved us from sin, does sin really matter anymore? And the answer is yes, it does. Do you not know, verse 16, that when you present yourselves to someone of slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in death? Excuse me, um, I lost my place here. Or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, into lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed, that is, from your sins? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we will conclude our reading at that point. Uh, 
Thanksgiving was on Thursday. I, I pray that you all had a blessed time and a safe time. Some of you traveled elsewhere and came back safely, and given the weather, we're very thankful for that. Some, uh, like I, overate um, a little bit on Thursday, but not too badly. Uh, but Thanksgiving is a national holiday for the United States of America. And uh, it occurred to me long ago that that's a great thing if you have an object to whoever, whoever whatever it is you are giving thanks. And uh, I remember reading an article in the local paper a number of years ago that uh, talked about being thankful, and I, and I realized after I read the article, it never, it, it, it said all these nice sounding things, but it never ever identified anyone to whom we ought to be thankful. God was not mentioned, family was not mentioned, friends were not mentioned, it was just uh, about a paragraph, maybe six or seven sentences, that said just be thankful, and uh, left it at that, and, and, and I thought, We've lost our way as a nation, and in a lot of ways, uh, each uh, succeeding year seems to demonstrate that. But uh, Thanksgiving needs an object. If you're going to give thanks, you need to give thanks to someone because of something uh, that they've done or for you, something that they've done for others. And uh, we understand, and uh, initially in our nation, we understood that that object was God, even though constitutionally and otherwise we never defined uh, in our days of Thanksgiving, uh, although different presidents and other things did uh, uh, exactly what God always we were talking about in our giving of thanks, uh, recognizing generally it would have been what's called the Judeo-Christian God. But we as Christians, above all others, know the one to whom all thanks is due, and so uh, we celebrate and we get involved, I, I'm sure, in many of the traditions uh, that are dear to us uh, in this country and perhaps if you're in other countries that do similar things. Um, but we don't forget the one to whom uh, Thanksgiving belongs and, and uh, we never should. Uh, but we also need to remember when we are reminded of Thanksgiving, it should not be, oh yeah, I forgot most of the last 364 days to say thanks to God, so I'll just do that quickly today before I get into the three F's of Thanksgiving Day, which are food, football, and family. Uh, two of the three, at least, are good things. Um, but uh, as I close, it occurred to me just this morning, uh, in, in light of Psalm 106, and some of the things I'm just going to say in a quick review of that in a minute, there is a place for things like Thanksgiving Day, uh, National Days of Thanksgiving and Prayers, because I believe Psalm 106 is one of those psalms that was uh, written by uh, King David for such an occasion as that. And so uh, I wanted to briefly do an overview of the 106th Psalm for you because it captures the good and the bad of living in a fallen world, um, particularly, maybe not even as the people of God, but particularly as the people of God, as it, uh, David recounts 
essentially briefly the history of the nation of Israel from the time that uh, the Lord delivered them out of slavery in Egypt uh, through the intercessory work of Moses and, uh, and gives us a, an understanding of what, it, what that has looked like and what the people of God, the Old Testament people of Israel, uh, were doing and what God, uh, sitting on his throne in heaven, was doing as well. Psalm 106 was most likely, even though it's not attributed, it doesn't have in your Bible a, a little note that are often there, a Psalm of David or a Psalm of Asaph, the sons of Korah, or other such things. But it was most likely written by David, and I would encourage you uh, to look to 1 Chronicles 16 and to Psalm 105, uh, because in 1 Chronicles 16, the first 15 verses, uh, we have the situation where uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant has been recovered. It is finally coming to Jerusalem. David is uh, now uh, there, and uh, as the, uh, the second king of Israel following um, the first king, that I just forgot his name, um, Saul, thank you, uh, and he is celebrating with joy and rejoicing the uh, arrival of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, uh, getting a little, his wife was a little disturbed with the way that he did that in his dancing in the streets, how, you know, somebody who's the king of Israel, how should they be behaving like that? Um, but Psalm 105 is quoted specifically in the praise that David offers before the people on that day. But at the end of that, David also verbatim ends that prayer in, in 1 Chronicles 16 uh, with the first verse of Psalm 106 and the last two verses of Psalm 106. And so... Uh, it's very likely that, that these two psalms were both written by him. They went together. Uh, they're summarized, if, and it's very possible that uh, when everything was written down in Chronicles, that both of these psalms uh, were, were read to the people on this uh, day of celebration where everybody was called together for that purpose. Psalm 105 is a very up psalm, that it's, it's, it's recounting the history of Israel and all the good things that God has done for Israel. Psalm 106 is, in a sense, then doing that same thing, but from the perspective of what Israel was doing at that particular time. And so we have this uh, national prayer of confession and recommitment by King David at the time of the Ark of God was brought to Jerusalem. And uh, I just wanted to quickly summarize this because it's not all a downer and it's very important uh, to understand how it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the gospel. We have an introduction in verses 1 through 5 in this psalm. Uh, it's a psalm that begins as it ends with the word, uh, the Hebrew word hallelujah, which means praise the Lord or praise Yahweh, praise Jehovah, translated into English. It gives us, in verse 1, two reasons why we ought to uh, praise the Lord and to give thanks to the Lord. The first, do you see it there? He's good. He deserves it. Secondly, 
His loving kindness is love everlasting. And that loving kindness is a Hebrew word by Pastor McCracken. Uh, not too long ago, preached a, uh, a very good sermon on a very, the shortest of Psalm, Psalm 117. And he talked about that particular word. It, it can be translated grace. It can be translated mercy. It's just the idea of God extending his favor to his people out of his love for his people. Verse 3 answers the question posed in verse 2, which is, who can speak of these things, the mighty deeds of the Lord, and who can show forth all his praise? Uh, verse 3 uh, tells us the type of person that does that, the one who is able to keep justice and who practices righteousness at all times. So looking really for perfect people there uh, in theory, uh, but uh, since the fall of Adam into sin, uh, there has not been any perfect people save the Lord Jesus himself, and that is uh, the problem to which the scriptures speak and the reason for which Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins. And we have a specific singular prayer here in verses 4 and 5, and I don't know if you note it, but it is the only section of the psalm where it's first person singular. In other words, all of a sudden the psalmist who is talking in generality says, Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation. And it goes on to give three uh, reasons why he offers this prayer. That I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones the people of God, the nation of Israel, for us, the church of Christ, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation. Again, pointing to the uh, people of God, and that I may glory with your inheritance. And that inheritance is not talking about a financial idea, you, you know, the, that a, a will, but it's talking about the very sons and daughters of Israel, the people of God being God's inheritance on earth that he shares with fallen mankind. So we have this introduction, then we have this prayer. Now, what do we do with that? It could be David as king of Israel is taking the leadership and speaking about his relationship to God as being somehow tied to the relationship of the nation with that as well. It could also uh, and more likely be reflecting David's uh, coming um, ordination, I'll, I'll say it that way, as the Messiah, the, the king who will have a son who will reign over the people of God forever and ever, so that, that David is the messianic king, Jesus is his, ultimately his son, he's called in the Gospels the son of David. Uh, over and over and over again. So we, we, we sh I think we see David here, we see as a representative of the people uh, before God, I think uh, a type of Christ is implied here as well, because it is only Jesus who can do, verse 3, can perfectly keep justice and practice righteousness at all times. We then come after the, the introduction and in these first five verses, what I would call the recurring problem, which is stated in verses 6 and 7. We have sinned. 
like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders, and etc. What is being declared here is that God's people have sinned. Their sin is nothing new because he says, with our fathers. It started at least from the purpose of the psalm. And we know it started back in the Garden of Eden, but uh, he picks this up at the Red Sea after the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt uh, with the understanding, and this is helpful us, that Israel, when they came out of Egypt, are now a redeemed people who have been called to serve the Lord. They're going to go to Mount Sinai and there they're going to say all that the Lord has said we will do and we will be obedient. And then they're going to turn around within uh, a chapter of that time to show uh, that they were not able to do even that. And so we have, in essence, an introduction to the theme of the psalm. Let's go back to where this started. After God had done this miraculous salvation for his people, um, at the Red Sea, they began to turn and sin against him uh, immediately. And our fathers and we do not understand nor remember. And then in verse 8, we come to one of two words translated in my Bible, and I don't know what they are in your Bible, but nevertheless, in verse 8, we're going to see that again in verse 44. Uh, I spent a lot of time looking at those particular constructions because there's no Hebrew word there that says never to let nevertheless but rather it's just the word and he saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power known but the nevertheless has the uh, the letter of which is the looks like a fish hook or a shepherd's uh, stack and it, uh, a staff and it, it's essentially the Hebrew word for and and sometimes it is attached to a noun or a verb, and it, it, it links it together. So there's a link between verse this uh, bad stuff in verses 6 and 7 and what's about to be said. Nevertheless here, it could just be said, and he saved them for the sake of his name. Uh, but that construction says you gotta, you got to understand the point of what's being said. They sinned against him, and he was fine with it? No. The idea was there, he sinned against them, and we might insert something like this, as the, the, the Jews have done. And in spite of all of that, and for no reason other than he decided to do it, he saved them. And why did he do it? Was it for them? Well, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his power known. And so he rebuked, did the miracle at the Red Sea, rebuked the water, and he led them through and delivered them ultimately out of Egypt. And so verses 8 through 12, God forgave them. He stuck with them. He kept his promises to them, really, is what uh, these nevertheless are saying. And he poured out his loving kindness and grace upon them, and they sang his praise. Everything's good now until you get to verse 13. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. And from verse 13 over to verse 39, what we have is the history from the Red Sea until uh, the time that 
the nation of Israel and came into the promised land, and it goes through that. We're not going to read that. You can look at all that, but it, it catches the high points all along the way. And so we have the recurring problem expanded in those verses. And how soon they forgot, and that's shades of Judges. If, if you look at Judges chapter 2, it explains what's going on in the book of Judges, and it's helpful uh, to understand what's going on in, in the whole history of the people of God, uh, that the, the people of God commit themselves to God, they turn away from God, they begin to uh, look to the other nations and play the harlot with the nations and other things, they get in all kinds of trouble. God brings judgments upon them, and then they, they, they all of a sudden remember to bow down and to pray to God and to ask him to deliver them. And because uh, our God promises to do that, he does that for them, and then everything's all right for a while, and then the cycle goes on over and over and over again. And we see that cycle even up to the present day. And that is stated... Uh, perhaps uh, summarized in verse 30, 43. Many times he, that is God, would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. And then we come to the second nevertheless, which is a similar but a little different Hebrew form, but it's the, the same idea Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And he remembered his covenant for their sake, not for his sake, his name's sake now, but for their sake. And then he saved them again so that they were again a presence of God before the nations around him. And the point of both of those nevertheless is, is that God did what he promised to do in spite of his people who did not do what they had committed to do before him. God does for his people what they do not deserve. And the point is that is exactly what he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ while he came into the world. So the conclusion in verses 47 and 48 um, really speak to our, our prayer and our purpose. Uh, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. That's uh, our prayer that God would do that and our purpose that we will make his name known to others and give him thanks for that. And it also is talking about uh, our profession of faith in him and our praise to him. Blessed be the Lord. And we're going to conclude our service with singing these words, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So we come to Romans chapter 6, which is in the context of the first five chapters of Romans, and I've I've made some longer notes so that we can just, you can go through this on your own, but uh, Romans 1 through 5, we, we start out with the blessing of the gospel for Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, 
that's how Paul begins this in chapter 1 with, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek or the Gentile, the non-Jew, is what he's talking about. In these first five chapters of Romans, we have in chapters 2 and 3, we have the universal problem for Jews and Gentiles alike stated clearly in chapter 3, verse 23, where it says, for all, and that all means whether you were Jewish, whether you were not Jewish, it didn't matter, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only answer to that is Jesus Christ uh, crucified and risen. It goes on in chapters 3 and 4 to talk about the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone, and perhaps a good summary of that is in chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. Paul teaches us that this is what was promised in the book of Genesis. Uh, this justification was inaugurated in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, verse 6, where God comes to Abraham and it says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, the idea that uh, God was going to uh, make Abraham righteous even though he was not worthy of it and did not deserve it. He would be declared as such by uh, the acts of God, which were perfectly just and in accordance with who he is in the law that he uh, has given to us. Romans 4 speaks about that. And then in chapter 5, uh, this salvation, this justification by faith in Christ alone was accomplished and fulfilled, as Paul declares, in the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. And uh, in chapter 5, note particularly uh, verses 6 through 11. And the verse that uh, I would like you to see there in chapter 5, before we get to concluding in chapter 6, is that verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one... That's speaking of Adam. Death reigned through the one. In other words, everybody, we all have original sin because of our uh, lineage all the way back to the first man, Adam, who fell and all of humanity fell with him. So, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Uh, that Jesus did what Adam could not. He obedient, was obedient to God perfectly. He became a perfect sacrifice and offered up himself and shed his blood to cover our sins. But uh, Paul's idea, he's aware of the, the abundant grace of God. And comes to chapter 6. Uh, to talk about uh, that abundant grace that we not misuse it. The ultimate nevertheless is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Sinful man is always determined to go his way. Nevertheless, from the very beginning of history, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that one would come who would set all things right, would perfectly be able to keep the law of God so that he could take the place of his people and pay for their sins, that they might have everlasting life. And, and Paul is saying, we have been set free, which ultimately means, if, uh, if we understand Paul rightly, that if you are in Christ, you will never die. Now, we understand that we, until the Lord comes again, will die. But even when we die, we really are not dying because everlasting life already belongs to those who belong to Christ. And so in Romans 6.23, it starts with those missing paychecks in summary as we close. And that is number one. If you want to pray to God and demand of God what you have earned before God, you're crazy. Well, I, I didn't mean to say that, but you're crazy because you will get what you ask for and you will not like it. Paul says, is saying in verse 23, that last verse is, uh, you need to view your life like that, that if you're going to live it with you at the center of your life, then you're uh, earning, this is what you're going to earn. You're going to earn condemnation and everlasting death and slavery. And we don't want that. So we need to remember what God did to Israel in Psalm 106, verses 40 through 43. Uh, we can say, well, that happened in Old Testament times, but the church is not immune from the sins of the fathers. Each generation of Christ's church is responsible, and each one of us, children, you're not excluded, and these things is responsible to be characterized by the things at the beginning and end of Psalm 106. And if you receive God's free gift of salvation, the scriptures say you will be saved. And it is a gift from him. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is the promise of God whose loving kindness lasts for a thousand generations. And that promise has stood since Genesis chapter 3 and will stand until the Lord comes again and sets all things right at the last great day the questions the two questions here in verse says 1 and in verse 15 that Paul asks have the same simple and clear answers and Paul gives it there may it never be that is about the strongest uh, way that you can say no uh, in the Greek language. And Paul says it to both of them, understanding that this is the same Paul who says that we must walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And that is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And the same Paul who I would like you to listen to by way of application as we close our time together today. 
wages of sin will lead to death. If you want to put your life out and say, look at my life and judge me according to it, you will be lost and you will spend eternity in hell. However, if you say, look at my life, I have given it to Christ and he has died for my sins and I now live in him, you will be received into the joy of our Father for all eternity. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That includes your wives, your husbands, your parents, your children, your bosses, your fellow church members and friends, the people with whom you go to school, the people with whom you work, the checkout people at the supermarket, and we could go on and on. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks. For you are a great God, not just a good God. Your loving kindness extends to a thousand generations to those who love you and serve you and are called according to your purposes. You are the God of whom it is true that even when we are faithless as your children, you never are. You are always faithful and will never deny yourself and will never let us down. Lord, we need to hear that. Father, we pray for our land. There's so much going on that is so troubling. There is great persecution directed toward those who claim the name of Christ. There are things that go on that make no sense, and yet people seem to think that they are totally okay. That is the world to which you have called us to testify about you and your son, Jesus. And we pray that you will help us to be bold in doing that, that we will stand for that which is true and right, that they, we will not turn our back on your promises, that we'll, we'll not be like the children of Israel who quickly forgot the things about you and about who you were. But Lord, we confess that it's very easy for us to walk out these doors and to 
uh, leave and go uh, our own ways and quickly forget the things that you have reminded us of here as we have worshipped you and have had the fellowship and counsel of one another in the body of Christ. And so we ask that you will help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and that we might be useful for service until that day when you call us home. And so we pray that you will restrain evil, that you will upset the devices of the wicked as they rage against you and your son, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.